Get ready to join us in some headbanging as we discuss the world of heavy metal. Hey guys, that music really doesn't fit today's episode. Do you think you could change it up a bit? Hello and welcome to the Musician Toolkit, episode number 24. My name is David Lane, I'm your host, and it is great to be with you once again. So one of the tools of the Musician Toolkit that I have mentioned before is that if you're a musician, you need to have an awareness and understanding of multiple genres. And thus far, we've talked about classical music, we've also talked about jazz, and we've talked about film music. Well, today we're going to talk about heavy metal. Actually, this week and next, we're going to talk about heavy metal. And that's because the conversation that I had with my guest went a little long, and it got even longer when I started adding in the musical examples that we were discussing. And there honestly wasn't anything significant that I wanted to cut. I I really enjoyed this conversation. So I decided to make it two parts. So today we're going to talk about heavy metal overall as a genre and some of the musical elements that make up heavy metal and some of the major bands throughout the history of the genre. So that's going to be today's episode. Next week we're going to look into all the subgenres of heavy metal uh, as an overview and then we're going to conclude that by offering some of our favorite albums from me and my guests. So I'm looking forward to sharing both episodes. So today, for episode 24, we're just going to get into the very beginning. So let me introduce my guest to you today. His name is Eric Schwartz, and he is the type of musician I love to talk to, and that is he is very multifaceted. As you'll hear him say, he he has an academic job. He's very well knowledgeable of classical music. He's actually... Among the things he's done, I don't think that he actually mentions when we talk about it, is that he's led a contemporary music ensemble and, uh, you know, very knowledgeable of, you know, postmodern classical music. But he's also a big heavy metal fan, and he has a podcast devoted to the subject for newbies called Heavy Metal 101, and we'll talk more about that as we go. All right, even in two parts, both of these episodes are a little on the long side, I think everything else you need to know we're going to cover as we go. So let's go ahead and get started. Here's my conversation part one with Eric Schwartz. Well, let's see. You've got your coffee or is it your tea? I have tea. Oh, it's yeah, I got I got coffee. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I think we're we're in the mood, but we're you know, we're wearing our black and Oh yeah, I got my Judas Priest shirt on. Yeah. All I all I have the closest I have is a weird owl shirt, but you know <laughs> that, that's not bad. You know, you could do worse. You could do worse. <laughs> how, how would it look if you went to a heavy metal concert wearing a weird owl shirt? Huh. I depend. I think it depends very much on which heavy metal concert you go to. It right. might get you into trouble in certain in certain circums- circumstances. <laughs> uh, so we are, of course, talking today to Eric Schwartz. Uh, Eric, thank you for joining the Musician Toolkit today. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's uh, introduce yourself. I mean, what you do when you're not doing a podcast, but also, of course, tell us about your podcast. 
Sure, sure, I can do both those things. Uh, yes, like like everybody else in the world, I, I contain legions. So I, I grew up as a uh, heavy metal kid. Uh, uh, it was my first musical love. Um, I once upon a time had every intention of dropping out of high school, moving to Los Angeles, and becoming a uh, you know rock star, a la a la Axl Rose in Guns N' Roses, um, and then uh, eventually took something of a detour as I ended up uh, studying musical composition at a conservatory and piano, uh, and pretty much spent my entire early adult life working as a freelance freelance classical composer and pianist uh, in New York City specifically. And then uh, kind of around around the time of COVID, I started I started casting about for uh, interesting interesting things to do, uh, I was I, I should say I am currently working as the music director at the UNC UNCSA School of Dance. And during COVID, when we were a little bit in and out, I was searching about for things to do, and uh, my my heavy metal passion <laughs> sort of came yeah. back to me through an assortment of musical deep dives. I took a bunch of deep dives into the back catalogs of all these artists I loved. Um, I eventually ended up taking a, a, these year-specific deep dives where I'd listen to like all the heavy metal in 1982, mm -hmm. and I, I just needed an outlet for that. So uh, that outlet eventually ended up being the Heavy Metal 101 podcast. And so I am now both a pedagogue teaching uh, you know, music for pre-professional dancers and a heavy metal podcaster. Well, I mean, that sounds like a nice little quilt to put together there. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I will say, you know, I I have a lot of episodes saved. I've only I've only listened to uh, I, I know all two full ones and I think maybe part of a third one. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's a pretty funny concept that you have. It's like you're the heavy metal expert and you have another classical colleague who doesn't know anything about heavy metal. <laughs> so, right. You're getting this yeah. different perspectives. It's pretty. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think with a with a genre that's so very specific and rich and deep as heavy metal, you kind of need a point of entry. And I thought that you know, sort of, a la the Harry Potter universe, a la you know, anything where you have the the the, the novice who is unfamiliar with the rules of the game, uh, it kind of gives me a good excuse to become the the teacher. And so I work with my colleague John, who is a fantastic classical conductor, um, really well trained musician. He's got a doctorate, um, but he doesn't know anything about heavy metal. So I get to teach him and make fun of him simultaneously, which is just an absolute joy. That's that's the thing that I miss about being a single host, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't have that type of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really nice to have someone to, to make fun of. I think that's really key. Yes. <laughs> you well, can make fun of me today if, if, if you're so inclined. Well, I'll, I was going to say, I think this could be an interesting episode. We... we we have an interesting connection. We've we've known each other for a while. I don't. We we've never done anything professionally together. That's true. Uh, you know, our, our paths just have not overlapped. So this, I guess, is maybe the first thing. It's like two podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but one thing I've been able to tell, you know, just from you know years of social media comments and posts, is that on major things we are in close agreement, but on minor things within those we disagree a lot you know it's like in terms of like we probably like a lot of the same bands but mm -hmm. probably few of the same albums i can see that i think that seems entirely <laughs> reasonable 
So I think we're going to have a lot of agreeing and disagreeing as we go. So that's that'll make that'll make it a, a fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be lovely. So let's start obvious. Let's start off with an obvious question: What is heavy metal? So, like, how how do I distinguish heavy metal from hard rock, from grunge? And and I know that what you answer is probably going to be different than what ten other people would answer. Right. But but what? How do you where where do you draw a line for what is metal and what is not? Yeah, I mean, I think one one of my principal tenets is that I don't subscribe to the idea of dogma in these things. So I have my own set of answers, but I'm very aware of the fact that these, you know, these are just labels. It's just semantics and that there is uh, there's generational differences. Certainly there's personal differences. There's people who feel really, really strongly in ways other than myself. And I'm perfectly comfortable accepting that. Um, one of the ways I like to define heavy metal is I like to think of it as a harder rock. Mm-hmm. So if you take the analogy of the rating system, you know, if rock music is sort of PG and then you get into the, the harder, the hard rock of, you know, that starts to develop in the later 1960s and beyond, we'll call that R-rated. When you get to heavy metal, that's where you're getting into the serious adult content. The NC-17, and in the case of some of the more extreme genres, the hard X. Um, so it's just rock music it's a subgenre of rock and roll in its essence but more it's just darker it's um uh, uh more of this idea of heaviness this idea of weight and thickness the musical texture that's most clearly embodied by the early work of the mighty black sabbath of course uh, i trace the birth of heavy metal and some would disagree to the release of black sabbath's debut which is february 13th 1970 the wonderful eponymous debut album And that album establishes some of the some of the fundamental tenets, particularly this really dark, macabre lyrical content, these sort of thick, low-end music, low-end heavy musical textures, really relying on the sound of the amplified bass, bombastic drums, uh, this powerful tenor singing voice of Ozzy Osbourne that's going to become even more so when you get to people like Rob Halford. And so heavy metal is, you know, it's rock music. It's just more it's more of everything it's the 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 heaviest the most metallic the most powerful and power is really one of the main words i think that's coded into the ethos of heavy metal so these are these are kind of some of the things i mean i think of the codification of metal really really getting going with black sabbath's second album paranoid you really get a lot of these elements firmly sort of being established but it's not it's not really until the mid 70s uh that heavy metal really Start, I mean, the term is, is is only really just getting going in the early 70s. And really, Judas Priest's second album, Sad Wings of Destiny, if anyone wants to know what like the foundation of the heavy metal code is, uh, I think that's a great place to look. You got riff-based music built on power chords, the powerful tenor singing, bombastic, highly rhythmic bass and drums, and these macabre, antisocial, lyrical themes. And also, same thing with the visual aesthetic with the long hair and the leather and stuff. Studs and, and all that jazz. Yeah. 
So if you listen to that one, the sad wings of destiny, it's a, and, and I think it was the first time I'd realized in a while, this, you know, he kind of rivals, uh, the original vocalist for Boston in terms of like the high <laughs> Rob Halford is just, I mean, the, 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 truly, truly the metal God as they call him. Uh, I mean, his voice is just, it's gorgeous, but it's also ridiculously powerful with the shrill high end stream screams and just, uh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's got, he's got a lot going on. No, no oh, question. Uh, uh, this is something I didn't quite present this in advance this way, but um, I thought this would be a good way to to talk about heavy metal a little bit more. Let's go back to the year 1970, mm -hmm. or, you know, just around then. Okay, so Black Sabbath is, you know, everyone calls, you know, when, they, when they're called heavy metal, they embrace it. And at that same time, the press starts to refer to the, another really big band at the time as heavy metal, and that's Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Page is pretty dogmatic. And I mean, most of the members that come across says, no, we're nothing like Black Sabbath. We're not heavy metal. So what I what I thought would be an interesting question for you is um, argue for and argue. In, well, ar argue Jimmy's case, you know, be, be on his side. But at the same time, tell us what it is that the newspapers and the press, the magazines, why they made that claim. Okay, so I mean, I think the one of the first things that's important to consider is just like what the term, the label, like heavy metal, the way the label comes forth, I think is really important to consider here because it gives you a little bit of context for why, why someone like Jimmy Page might have been reluctant to accept it. Mm -hmm. So the term heavy metal, you know, it's been around obviously in science since the early 19th century, heavy metals. Um, it's also, it's also used in the 19th century in a couple of interesting sort of more salient ways. Uh, it's used, uh, in military affairs. It refers to really big, uh, cannon. So you have these really large cannons. Um, and later that usage in the late 19th century becomes figurative where it refers to a man of great esteem and power and authority. So that all sounds pretty good. By the 1960s, you first get it in the sort of popular culture in William Burroughs. Mm -hmm. uh, William Burroughs uses it in the early 1960s in a not not musical way, but in a way that really filters into the counterculture. He has a character named the Heavy Metal Kid uh, in, in, in an early trilogy of books that he writes in the 1960s. And by the later 1960s, obviously you get Steppenwolf's Heavy Metal Thunder reference, that's 1968. And it starts, this idea of heavy metal starts to filter into rock criticism. And that's where it begins to gain a pejorative meaning. And you get critics, particularly Mike Saunders and Cream, uh, Lester Bangs, Rolling Stone, you get critics using it as an adjective for music they hate. Yeah. <laughs> like there's this great Mike Saunders review where he talks about uh, the band Humble Pie. And I don't remember the exact quote off the top of my head, but he, something like a heavy, heavy metal leaden shit rock band. Pardon me <laughs> if uh, <laughs> the language is inappropriate, but uh, he, he's clearly using it uh, in a negative context. And this was true really throughout, throughout much of the very early 1970s. It's an adjective, not a noun, and it's, an, it's a negative context. 
So a band like Led Zeppelin would have every reason not to want to associate themselves with it. I mean, even Black Sabbath in their early days before the, the label became more of a noun than an adjective, they referred to themselves as downer rock rather than, uh, you know, rather than heavy metal. Uh, I would say the first band that really is proud to be a heavy metal band that wears it as a badge of honor, that's probably Judas Priest. I mean, Black Sabbath definitely are unquestionably a heavy metal band, and I don't think they have the negative association that Led Zeppelin have, but Led Zeppelin always, you know, I think they, they didn't want to be pigeonholed. They certainly didn't want the negative associations. I think Led Zeppelin have heavy metal songs, but so do the Beatles, you know, uh, so do Queen. So I... I mean, look, I'm going to say something really controversial that I don't think I've even actually said on my podcast, but I'll say it now. I don't like Led Zeppelin very much, <laughs> so I, I have no problem not accepting them into the heavy metal canon. All right, but, all right, we're done now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so th thank you for having me. It's been really nice. Uh, but but th they're a band, obviously, that does more than play heavy metal. In fact, much more. And I don't, I don't even know that I'd say their heavy stuff is their most successful stuff. So... I, I get it. I get where Jimmy Page would be coming from. I mean, it's also, it makes me sad as a heavy metal scholar, but there's a real tradition of heavy metal artists or possibly heavy metal artists denying the label because frankly, it pigeonholes you. It makes it, it limits your fan base, you know, it turns off advertise, you know, this does have all kinds of potential negative consequences of being a quote unquote heavy metal band. So Jimmy doesn't want to be heavy metal, but he wants to, you know, worship Satan and live in Aleister Crowley's house. Well, more power to him. <laughs> Great. Um, maybe, maybe let's take it from a, a later era. Um, mm -hmm. Let's talk about like, you know, the early nineties grunge, uh, especially, uh, I mean, I guess you could say Nirvana, but I'm especially thinking of Alice in Chains and I'm thinking of Soundgarden never heard them called heavy metal but is there a dividing line between their style of music and say oh i don't know metallica and megadeth and you know the bands of the time yeah i mean so grunge <laughs> grunge is definitely an interesting case uh there's there's definitely i think uh an argument to be made I wouldn't probably personally be comfortable making it, but there's an argument to be made that grunge writ large could be perceived as a heavy metal subgenre. I've certainly seen it perceived as such. Uh, I, I don't think that's accurate. I mean, grunge is obviously to a large degree a reaction to heavy metal that's got more steeped in a punk or hardcore ethos than in a heavy metal ethos. Um, but but you, then you have these bands that fit, uh, you know, you have Nirvana, but then you have, like you said, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. I mean, when those bands first came out, you know, particularly Soundgarden, who were pretty, pretty early in the Seattle scene. Well, they were viewed as kind of weirdo outlier alternative you know, Soundgarden was viewed as a weirdo outlier alternative heavy metal band. I mean, I've, I've seen Kim Thale frequently talk about how he doesn't like heavy metal, but I've also seen them frequently cite Black Sabbath as an influence. Mm -hmm. So 
I would say that grunge itself, in my non-dogmatic opinion, is, is not a heavy metal subgenre, but some of those artists, I mean, Alice in Chains made their bones opening for, for you know, the, the, the big, uh, the big four, like thrash concerts, I believe. Uh, they were, they were the opening band in that, in that tour back in the nineties. And so, you know, they were perceived as a heavy metal band. I mean, when when Man in the Box first came out and I first heard it, I thought like, cool, it's a heavy metal song. I mean, and I could actually go even harder into that. The first time that Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit premiered on MTV was on Headbangers Ball. I was watching. I saw it. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't offend my delicate heavy metal sensibilities at all. I was. I mean, Kurt Cobain was wearing a dress at the time. On was he? Well, he was being interviewed on Headbangers Ball. That was clearly provocative and and and, and fun. But when it started, grunge was definitely kind of perceived by metalheads as a part, as as being acceptably within the code framework. I think retrospectively we can see that doesn't hold very well, but bands like Alice in Chains, I mean, everything I described about heavy metal as codified by Judas Priest, I think pretty accurately applies to a band like Alice in Chains and and, and bands like Soundgarden to a certain degree, at least, you know, through, say, Bad Motorfinger. I mean, you know, these bands are, of course, all change. They all evolve. And particularly those grunge bands, I think, did get less heavy as heavy metal went out and grunge was in and trends were changing and people were maturing. But I... I listened to those bands, to Soundgarden. I listened to Alice in Chains. I listened to these bands. I didn't listen to Nirvana, you know, when I was a kid. I love them passionately now. But, um, and, and the, you know, I was very much heavy metal only at the time. So, you know, take, take that for what, for, you know, what you will. I don't think they are or aren't definitively heavy metal, but I think I would make a good faith argument that both of those bands have at least one foot in heavy metal. I wonder, does tempo have anything to do with it? Because, you know, I'm thinking through, I, I've listened to a lot of Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, and I can't off the top of my head think of any any tracks that approximate the fast, the faster tracks of your true heavy metal bands. You know, I don't know if mm -hmm. that has something to do with it. Yeah, I definitely think that the branch of heavy metal that informed grunge that informed these quasi-metal grunge bands is what we'd call doom metal, is the thing that derived from Black Sabbath's... You know, Black Sabbath had many modes. <laughs> they yeah. certainly had plenty of, like, fast, you know, proto-thrash metal songs even. But really, one of their main modes, one of the early paradigms of heavy metal in Black Sabbath's hands was slow, doomy, sludgy kind of sounds. Iron Man and stuff like that. That sound definitely filters its way heavily into grunge. I mean, bands like the Melvins and whatnot, who certainly aren't metal, but really, really are informed by that sort of thing. So uh, I don't, I don't think that the. Uh, let, let me just say it clearly: there are 
definitively heavy metal bands that are part of what we call the doom metal or the stoner metal subgenres that play primarily at these slower tempos. So I don't think that's in tr- metal metal's relationship to tempo is a complicated one. And I, I do think it depends on the subgenre to a certain degree. So I don't think that disqualifies, I guess, is what long story short. Okay. So one interesting thing about heavy metal and, you know, I think, and right now we are two classical musicians that, that happen to like heavy metal. I, I think <laughs> you're more into it than I am, but I do like, <laughs> I do like it quite a bit. I have met, you know, in terms of like when I meet people who identify first as classical musicians, when you talk about the other music they like, heavy metal surprisingly common as something that they also like, like you, you're more likely to find out that they really like um you know listening to anthrax or or metallica than you are the to find out that they like listening to huey lewis in the news or you know some something else some some other type of music from that time period that's maybe you know not as mellow but i think one of the things is when you when you look at what makes up the music so that's what i want to get into now is the nuts and bolts of what what goes into the music mm-hmm. i think we start off with there, I've heard this expressed a lot. There are a lot of similarities between Baroque music and heavy metal composition. Right. The, what, what are some of those? Okay, so I actually did a podcast episode on this. I mean, I'm uniquely qualified, obviously, as a classical musician who is a big old heavy metal nerd simultaneously. There is definitely... Throughout throughout heavy metal history, there's this sort of misnomer that heavy metal is the, like, dumb guy caveman music um but but really throughout its entire existence i i I would argue that heavy metal has been heavily informed by classical music traditions i would in fact say that in some respects classical music is the first heavy metal uh Mm -hmm. it's the first really you know it's music with 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 heaviness with weight with thickness with these you know rich orchestral textures Mm -hmm. um so i in my episode I, i what the paradigm that i took was the idea of the 18th and the 19th century violin virtuoso. Um, I used Vivaldi and Paganini as my two models, and I compared them to Deep Purple's Richie Blackmore and, of course, the great Eddie Van Halen. And, you know, the we think, so we think of heavy metal as, like, dumb music and classical music as, like, smart music. And, of course, this is all total nonsense. But 18th century... And, and, and 19th century, for that matter, you know, concerti, pieces that are designed to show off the virtuosity of a solo instrument, often violin, but can be anything, um, juxtaposed with a symphony orchestra. Uh, these are pieces that are, you know, basically performer composers who want to gig, who want to show off their chops, who want to show off how awesome they are. I mean, you have in the 19th century, you have, uh, you know, the, the, the Franz Liszt thing of being like a, a rock star with, you know, women going crazy and swooning. You have Paganini <laughs> as like the, you know, dark wearing all black figure. I mean, it's very, it's very heavy metal and it, it's, it's really not that different. I mean, you have shredding scales and arpeggios, you have, uh, you know, 
flamboyant displays of virtuosity. You have uh, clear iterations of, you know, musical forms that the listener of the day is sort of programmed to be able to readily follow. I mean, the 18th century concerto is not brain surgery to follow, but most 21st century denizens maybe are not totally familiar with those idioms. Whereas if you listen to, uh, you know, a, a Deep Purple song or whatever, you're going to know that it's going to go verse, chorus, you know, verse, chorus, bridge, solo, you know, whatever. Um, and so they're, they're really, they're built of the same essential stuff. They have a lot of the same functions. Heavy metal's got uh, lead guitar god sort of solo breaks in pretty much, <laughs> with some exceptions all of its tunes in the same way that these 18th and 19th century composer virtuosi were utilizing a lot of their pieces to show off their own virtuosity. So it's really, they're, they're, <laughs> they're very similar in a lot of ways. And if you look at, you know, if you look at a piece like Eruption, you know, Eddie Van Halen's Eruption, I mean, he's really, he's really taking distinctly some of the vocabulary, some of the very same vocabulary out of the, the sort of class classical and the romantic uh, uh, eras and just applying them to the distorted electric guitar. So the, the cross-pollinization there is just really quite extraordinary. And And in, in the 21st century, it goes both ways. You even have, you know, I'm a composer. I've written a number of classical pieces that are informed by heavy metal techniques. So, right. uh, you know, it circles and circles and circles. But yeah, there is clearly a technical and aesthetic comparison to be drawn between heavy metal and classical music. And that's not even including, you know, subgenres like symphonic metal and things that really like underline the point. I was just thinking if you go to the Vivaldi's Four Seasons, the you know, the finale of summer. No, oh, yeah. Like metal. It, totally metal. I would bet if I was to search on YouTube, I could find a heavy metal cover. It, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and it would totally fit, you know. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, one of the one of the sort of aesthetic ideas of heavy metal is the galloping riff. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we especially associate that with Iron Maiden. But Vivaldi, you know, you get you know. You get you get these same ideas just repackaged in a uh, very different timbral universe of the heavy metal band. So I thought about a couple of things in terms of uh, harmony. You know, you're talking about the eruption solo. You know, some of the things that Van Halen does, and he, he does like these basically descending, diminished triads. You know, that that are you know, bro you know broken triads. As just kind of climbing down as part of his solo, but the core of the band 
a lot, you know, I, I think some other rock bands did this first, but heavy metal really embraced what we call the power chord, which is basically oh, yes. it's the basically a root and a fifth with no third. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I describe the foundation of heavy metal as the power chord, the one and the five, and occasionally an extra octave on top of that to add a little bit of thickness. But the, the dyad, if you want to use that yeah. term, it's not, it's not technically a chord, but right. it certainly functions as one with that, with that really interesting ambiguity of not having a third. And that is built into riffs. Which which really come out of you know come out of blues come out of some 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 definitely pre heavy metal musics but that's really you know whether it's Van Halen or or Black Sabbaths you know Iron Man or or whatever that's really what everything else is built upon heavy metal songs to my mind the idea of the chord progression is very intrinsic to the idea of the songwriter it's had that classical composition as well to some degree but in heavy metal it's not so much about the chord progression it's about the riff and the riff contains an implicit chord progression but but if you're not using thirds you know you're really you're really messing with the sort of fundamental premise of western harmony in some very interesting ways uh that uh to me at least are super super cool uh you know without these major and minor chords left and right that kind of commit you uh to to a certain mood that heavy metal doesn't necessarily rely on and i don't know how prevalent it is in other bands but you know my the the black sabbath song that i'm most likely to repeat is the song black sabbath and it starts off with that tritone <laughs> in the very beginning well you know where that came from right the devil's in <laughs> well the, so yes the, so the triathlon the diabolus and musica but the way the way that tony iomi came up with that riff is they were in in practice one day and uh geezer butler was actually working out the main line from gustav holst's mars bringer of war from oh, the planet God. suite And so he was playing that and Tony was like, huh, that's pretty cool. I like that. And so he took that idea, uh, and, you know, which also incorporates Diabolus and Musica, but he took it, he modified it, and he turned it into the principal riff of the first song on the first heavy metal album, Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath from Black Sabbath. And that's, to my mind, you know, those bells at the beginning of that tune, the rain pouring down, that's, you know, that's heavy metal being born essentially. And so I guess I guess heavy metal's father is Gustav Holst in this in this telling. <laughs> yeah, Gustav Holst and, uh, and Mars specifically. This is the fourth time in this young young history of this podcast this has been mentioned. So all of you <laughs> listeners, if you haven't heard that piece, get out there and check it out. Right. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, lyrically, uh, I think that's also where heavy metal distinguishes. You know, you talk about the themes, but like in that song, Black Sabbath, is it? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Satan looks at me. He's smiling. 
Oh yeah, yeah. It's all so that it's it's really interesting there because that obviously establishes very early on this relationship between heavy metal and the macabre and Satan and all that. And the, the way that came about was that apparently uh, a geezer butler had had gotten an old sort of Latin text on the occult, and he was reading it one night. He fell asleep and he woke up and he either imagined or actually saw some hooded figure at the foot of his bed. He had this like night terror basically. And that's what he penned the lyric about. Geezer Butler being the principal lyric writer for Black Sabbath. And the interesting thing about that song is, well, it is indeed about a hooded figure and about Satan and about the occult. It's about the fear of those things. It's about praying to God for salvation from those things. So the you have here already a, a little bit of a complication of this idea of heavy metal as the evil music, because really what Ozzy is doing when he's singing those lyrics is is, is praying for salvation. I mean, in some respects, uh, quite literally, Black Sabbath are the first Christian metal band. I mean, they wear big crosses, not big inverted crosses. So right. it's, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy, but, but certainly the idea of utilizing the macabre to theatrical effect is born on that their day with the with Black Sabbath. Right. By the way, a little pop quiz. Is Spinal Tap a heavy metal band or, a th- <laughs> <laughs> or are they hard rock? <laughs> a Spinal Tap or the heavy metal band. Uh, no, Spinal Tap are definitely, I think, a very important uh, bit of comic relief in the heavy metal ethos. Yep. I mean, you and I, you and I were talking about Weird Al earlier. I think, I think technically off air. I'm not sure, uh, but uh, you know, we this is just sort of the heavy metal Weird Al, right? It's the idea of something that really pokes fun at, takes the air out of. I mean, a lot of those bits are based on bands like Black Sabbath and Judas Priest and <laughs> and whatnot. And so, yeah, I'm going to say that the Great Spinal Tap are indeed an important, informative heavy metal band. I think was it Deep Purple that claimed to be the world's loudest band, and I think that's where that kind of came. Yeah, and that's and that's something. First, it's Deep Purple. Eventually, it's Motorhead. It's been since taken a, 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 taken over a number of times. But yeah, Deep Purple were actually made it into the Guinness Book of World's Records as mm-hmm. the world's loudest band. So I mean, it, you know, you'd asked about heavy metal earlier, and I one 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 word that I think all of the sort of great literature on heavy metal always comes back to is the idea of power, and particularly the idea of power as it manifests in volume and so heavy metal's loud you know the, the kiss motto if it's too loud you're too old <laughs> it's very it's very much central to, to to heavy metal so you know my wife always makes sure i wear earplugs to concerts these days but yeah. uh you know it's, it's still got to be loud oh yeah that's true uh you know talked about the, the classical heavy metal comparison and you know deep purple has they have a concerto for group and orchestra. (laughs) They sure do. (laughs) I'm of the opinion that there is a material difference between crossover projects, (laughs) which I think concerto for group and orchestra, John Lord's, uh, right. I'm not, I'm not going to say a failure. I'm just going to say peace, uh, uh, (laughs) versus say like an album, like machine head, Deep Purple, where there are definitely classical influences. There is an underpinning, but it's it's not it's not crossover. It's just like an organic synthesis of influences. 
those tend, in my experience, to be more effective. Uh, and I, I, uh, I try not to be too negative about much heavy metal, but I will say that concerto for group and orchestra uh, is it, it's something that uh, uh, people can skip if they're not so interested in these projects. But maybe you know, maybe maybe you'll find love for it. But it is definitely an early. A uh, very, very early example of something akin to heavy metal, sort of Mark II era, Deep Purple, working with a classical orchestra and classical techniques and all that. I don't, I don't know how effective it is at doing that, but it certainly tries. All right. So let's talk about a core metal band. So mm. you know, uh, the must-haves. I, I think there's three you must have. You must have an electric guitarist you know mm -hmm. the distortion you've got to have a, an electric bassist and you have to have a drummer and i think most heavy metal bands have two guitarists you have a rhythm and a lead you know but take us from there and and what are some of the musical characteristics like the technical requirements for each yeah okay so yeah i mean the uh, heavy metal Certainly, the beating heart of heavy metal is the distorted electric guitar. Uh, I think that's, you know, the effect of distortion, which kind of starts off in the 1950s as, you know, amps that are being, you know, holes punched through them and whatnot, and then becomes more formalized through, like, pedals and whatnot in the 1960s. This is really, really fundamental to heavy metal. Uh, you know, there is, there, there are... There's a few different paradigms. There is definitely the twin, you know, the two guitarist paradigm. Uh, it, this really begins probably with Judas Priest in heavy metal, mm -hmm. with the with, with you know K.K. Downing and Glenn Tipton, the sort of twin lead idea where one person's playing rhythm, the other person's playing lead. They both sort of switch off on solos. Uh, a lot of that comes out of the band, the Irish band Thin Lizzy, as well. And you uh, also but, have like solos in thirds, you know, like harmony. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Harmony. I mean, the ability. That's something you get in Judas Priest that you don't get in Black Sabbath. That's really interesting. So you know, t Black Sabbath are the first heavy metal band. They only have one guitarist you know they only have tony iomi so you don't get harmonized guitar solos in black sabbath but you definitely do get them in judas priest and of course you get them you know in iron maiden a few years later and that that, that does become central i do think there's definitely you know there's the guitar virtuoso a la tony iomi a la particularly eddie van halen who sort of really uh, 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 very viscerally and excitingly switches back and forth between lead and rhythm, you know, in real time. And so that that is something that's very common, actually, in the whole glam metal movement, the whole sort of post Van Halen movement. So, uh, you know, the two guitars versus the one guitar thing, I, I you know, I, I don't know if either are necessarily intrinsic to heavy metal, but guitar, distorted electric guitar certainly is. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned the guitar solo just in general, hugely important thing, the guitar god, your Randy Rhodes, your Eddie Van Halen, your Steve Vai's, people like that, the guitar genius, that's really important. You also have kind of a, a rhythm guitar hero paradigm, uh, particularly in thrash metal. I think of someone like James Hetfield or Scotty Ian, you know, Metallica and Anthrax, uh, these people with just incredibly precise right hand the use of palm muting to make a very rhythmic chugging sound. So, you know, these the, these are things that are all intrinsic to the heavy metal guitar <laughs> paradigms because <laughs> right. there are there are quite a few. Um, 
as far as uh, bass and drums, yeah. so you need bass. I think one of the interesting things about bass is that, well, the bass is not, doesn't have the same role in heavy metal of say the, the you know, the bass guitar versus the, 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 the electric guitar. The bass guitar's development as an amplified instrument in the 1960s is one of the things that makes heavy metal possible. You can't have musical heaviness, well, it's very hard to have musical heaviness, at least traditional musical heaviness, without a low end, without the thickness of a low end. You know, you think of heavy as emerging from the orchestrations of Richard Wagner in the 19th century, uh, you know, big, thick, low instruments and mass. Well, the bass, the amplified bass guitar does that. Um, but that, that said, bass is kind of funny because, you know, you have a band like Iron Maiden, Steve Harris is the leader, bass is very upfront in their mix. You know, you don't have Iron Maiden sound, which is very much at the heart of what heavy metal sounds like without bass. But then, you know, Metallica's And Justice For All, that is a, essentially a fundamentally bassless album. Um, and it's certainly heavy metal. So ba bass is interesting. I guess what I'd say is aside from its necessity as, you know, being an origin point of heavy metal, the, the development of the electric bass technology, um, I would also say that it is fundamentally a rhythmic and a textural element. It's used for thickness. It's used for drive more than it's used in most heavy metal subgenres, but not all for like, you know, it's virtuosity. There are exceptions. Yeah. Um, I, I would just kind of just jump in there. So, so yeah, like, please. you know, when it comes to like a heavy metal lead guitarist, you'd probably say their left hand gets a lot of work, but when oh, electric right. bass, the right hand gets a lot of work and the left hand most of the time, not as much. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, the 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 guitar is yeah. a. If you were to limit it, it's about shredding. Yeah, <laughs> it's not always about that, but there's you know from the blues, from jazz, from you know it's this the guitar solo is really important, um, and the bass is about these really, you know, a lot of bass players, a lot of metal bass players play with a pick, but I think, again, I'm, I'm in the Steve Harris mode, you know, famously, you know, when Iron Maiden went to record their first album, their original producer tried to tell Steve Harris to start using a pick, uh, and they fired him. <laughs> they immediately fired the producer, because Steve Harris is, is all about this just incredibly fast, you know, finger motion in the right hand. So yeah, I, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Left hand in the guitar, right hand in the bass, and the drums, of course it's all about it's all about bombast it's all you know a la ginger baker a la john bonham the great sort of proto metal drummers it's just massive sound and velocity and all that stuff um but you also get stuff that's pretty intrinsic to heavy metal i think of double bass you know the use of uh, of real virtuosic double bass that starts with ian pace and deep purple but then really explodes when you get to motorhead and speed metal and, and all that stuff and then later on in drums you get the idea you have the blast beat borrowed from hardcore music and grindcore and, and all that jazz, which becomes incredibly important in the 90s and the 21st century in, you know, your extreme metal genres, your death metal and stuff like that. You don't have that music without the blast beat, the sort of, you know, really, really fast, just pounding 16th notes over and over and over again. Pure endurance test, really. Yeah. And I would say if you're going to play heavy metal drums for a long time, your technique is so important because, yeah, I mean, I've studied a little bit of percussion and, um, you know, what a lot of self-taught people do is they're tight and, mm -hmm. and, and, and it looks like you have to be tight to get the sticks going so fast, but actually you've got to stay loose mm -hmm. 
you've got mm-hmm. otherwise your muscles are going to cramp up and and <sighs> you can't get through a whole concert <laughs> tendonitis you're going to get tendonitis <laughs> yeah i mean i will be honest and say i do not know how your average death metal drummer or grindcore drummer or whatever survives a live set like it seems to me superhuman but yes certainly you know just like with so many instrumental techniques the idea of relaxation is so important and the idea of somehow being able to maintain that endurance and you know rest those muscles every millisecond of time that you get to rest those muscles obviously that's the only way you're going to make it through So just a couple of musical elements I want to talk about. You know, we we talked a little bit about the chords, like the tritones and the you know the the power chords and so forth. One of the things that I noticed about heavy metal when I got into it, and I haven't really said, but you know, I didn't grow up heavy metal. I uh, I I kind of resisted it. I I, I grew I grew up in um, yeah in, in an environment that was pretty fundamentalist evangelical and ah. uh, and was you know not encouraged to listen to it and i can't and it took a while before i could listen to it without feeling like i'm doing something i shouldn't <laughs> but um that happened in you know late high school and you know i started uh, the, the first album that i li- that i listened to a friend told me uh if you're going to you know get started he gave me the metallica black album you know which was interesting you know, a, a very nice way to get some more traditional song structure mm-hmm. but at the same time hear the elements and then he said if you like that then he gave me and justice for all <laughs> <laughs> despite being next to each other uh in in their discography those are some those are very different albums um and yeah to, to show you how far things came um <laughs> a vulgar display of power by pantera was my fourth one <laughs> ah there you go all right all right and, and and so forth but one of the things i noticed especially in the harder metals was like listening to it trying to figure out what meter this is and <laughs> and and i started realizing that is actually a fairly common thing you don't hear that in the 70s metal so much but you do hear it in 80s onward quite a bit this idea of either mixed meter or shifting the accents so that mm-hmm. the meter's disguised Yes, yes, most definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, so one of the neat things about any subgenre of music is the ability of like really creative artists to just take and expand upon and amplify all these different techniques. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you have a band like Black Sabbath that's just kind of pounding, you know, slow, doomy with some notable exceptions, 4-4. Um, but then, you know, you get a band like Tool in yeah. the, you know, in the 90s and, and and beyond that is just all, you know, all these wild and crazy mixed meters. Uh, <laughs> you know, take, take a song like Schism <laughs> from Lateralis. I mean, that, you know, the bass riff in that, it's a 5-8 alternating with a 7-8, and then every so often they switch the seven and turn it into a six. <laughs> Like, what's going on here? And it just constantly keeps you on your toes. And like, I mean, this music, 
it's really accessible in its own weird way. It's really, really good. It's cool. It's not what I would call prog for the sake of being prog, but it is constantly keeping you on your toes metrically. And when deployed effectively, I think that can be super interesting. And I, yeah, Tool, I think, are a band that does that, you know, exceptionally well. But yeah, I mean, mixed meter, the idea of just sort of switching time signatures, you know, obviously that's been around for a long time. I mean, you know, there weren't always the concept of time signatures is, you know, something that really develops only in, you know, the late Renaissance and whatnot. But uh, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that is deployed in some fascinating ways in heavy metal. I mean, <laughs> it's not it's not so much mixed meter. Well, I mean, there is mixed meter, but, you know, gent, the subgenre of gent, I think is one of the most rhythmically interesting sort of more contemporary metal ideas. Uh, gent is not necessarily a subgenre. It depends on who you talk to. It's an onomatopoeia for the sound of this, particularly the detuned guitar. But the band Meshuggah, the Swedish sort of prog gent masters, uh, they apply not just mixed meter, but like an incredibly virtuosic use of polymeter, polyrhythm. Like uh, I, I would describe the music as fundamentally uncountable in like a transcription sense. I mean, I'm sure somebody can do it. I can't do it. Right. But it's, I mean, Thomas Hawk is their drummer and the guy has at least 14 arms. I don't, I don't know how he does what he does, but he's constantly in about six different meters. Like it's, it's ridiculous. And this is where we decided to wrap up part one of this conversation. So this is going to be the end of episode 24. Next week, I'm going to present part two of the conversation. And again, we're going to get into the subgenres of music and also maybe a little bit more of a historical perspective of heavy metal. And we're going to follow that up with, with my favorite segment. And that is we each talk about five of our all time favorite heavy metal albums. Now, if you listen to this episode out of curiosity and, you know, just because maybe you're not as familiar with heavy metal or you've thought you don't really care for it and want to just kind of hear us talk about it, if your interest is up and you, you want to hear more about it, then I, I really encourage you to listen to next week's episode. If you got to the end of this episode and you're like, I don't know if I could take another episode about heavy metal. I understand. I encourage you to keep an open mind, but it's okay if it's not your thing. And thank you for listening to this episode. Hopefully you've got some more understanding. And, you know, maybe even if you don't like it, and an appreciation. And of course, if you are a heavy metal fan, welcome aboard. <laughs> this is not the usual thing of this podcast, but we want to be inclusive for every type of music and give it a worthy discussion. Just a reminder, if you're watching this on YouTube, I would greatly appreciate it if you would click the thumbs up and you, if you would subscribe if you're not already. If you are listening to this on a podcast, it'd be great if you could leave a five-star rating and review. And if you would be so willing. Please share this episode with a friend. Definitely check out Eric's podcast, Heavy Metal 101. I'll go ahead and say, he said you could listen to it anywhere. I'll go ahead and say you, you should listen to it on Spotify. His podcast deserves the full sound clips to go with it, and that's the only place you can get it. And that's Heavy Metal 101.
Don't forget to check out the free trial of Fonz that you can get in my, in my show notes. It's something you want to check out if you have a private studio of any kind. So again, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back with you next week.